Many of you, especially in light of current theatrical monstrosities, did I say that right? Uh, are aware of Moses and the passing through the Red Sea. Um, these days we're aware of the fact that Hollywood has certainly made quite the coin on reinventing the true story into something much more fictional and fairy taleish. We're looking at a part of that right now. Not the fairy tale part, the real part. Where a generation left Egypt <clears throat> after 430 years of being there. It's all they'd known. For fourth generation, it's all they'd known. And when they got there, they weren't, uh, they weren't the slaves in the beginning. Oh, David, thank you so much. They arrived in Egypt because of a famine, much like Abraham had four generations prior. And Egypt was the only place where there was food. The reason Egypt had food was because of a Hebrew boy, part of this Jewish family, that had been betrayed and sold by his brothers for the price of a slave. Same price Jesus, in essence, would be traded for. And sold then to serve in Egypt and ultimately through a series of very rough events would be raised to be the king's second in command and ultimately will be used to bring salvation first to the un-Jewish world and then to the Jewish world as well once they've reconciled and recognized who he really is. Very much like we'll hear with the story of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who also was betrayed by his own and through a series of very, very rough circumstances, including the cross and his resurrection, was brought to the place of being second to the Father and used to the salvation of the world. And one day he will be reconciled to his brothers. And it will mean salvation for the Jews as well. They entered into Egypt under very amicable conditions. Joseph being the second in command, it's his family. He's reunited with his family and they're brought there because there's a famine and it's the only place where there's food, so the family goes. God will ultimately say, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And he had promised all the way back in Genesis 15 that four generations after they had gone in, they will go out that they would be enslaved by a people that are not their own. They would be very poorly treated. And like a fantastical riddle from Sherlock, you will go in a slave, be hated by all, be treated poorly, and come out a rich man where everyone's given you stuff. And that's a good riddle. God knows what he's doing. And, and I imagine in those days, much like today, we try to help him out by trying to bend the truth a little bit to try to make it sound like we understand the prophecy because it doesn't necessarily make sense the way it is. But God never asked us to, do, to help him out. He knew exactly what he was going to do and he was going to do it the way he was going to do it. Which, by the way, worked out just like he said. So, the people left. But here's the problem. For all of their years being in Egypt, for over 400, of those 430 years, 400 of those years, they would be slaves. 
Four centuries is a long time to learn life in a way and then wake up one day and not be it. Think about where 400 years ago was today. That was the 1600s. Shakespeare was writing. Well, actually, he was finishing about this particular time. They were, con- they were constructing his folio. King James was sanctioning the writing of the book that we know as the King James Version. The English dinner of the day was pig's head covered in mustard. And the average lifespan was somewhere roughly in their 50s. have come a long way, baby. But think if you are somebody of perhaps a different ethnic heritage, what 400 years ago looked like. And imagine being in that culture for 400 years and then waking up one day and then all of a sudden everything that you've known is going to be different. That's quite a discipline, wouldn't it be? Especially when those 400 years were years in slavery. Dad knew slavery, grandpa knew slavery, great-grandpa knew slavery. That's all we really have known. And all of a sudden we have to wake up and think not like a slave. How do you do that? God systematically proceeds then to strip them of everything that they've known of themselves out of kindness to rebuild it from the concentric circle of them and him first him being at the center of their life and the Lord will do that with you too some of you that's why you don't want to give your life to Jesus like you should because we know that if we do he's going to tear the house down and we want him to redecorate We want him to relocate the house. The house isn't really in a great neighborhood. We'd like him to change some habits, make more people like us, because we don't even like ourselves. And God's like, I'm tearing this thing down, because to be honest, it needs a greater foundation than the one you have. Because the building that God wants to build on that foundation of your life, the only foundation strong enough to hold what he has planned in his blueprints is himself. And so no other foundation can be laid than Jesus Christ. And then as Jesus Christ is our foundation, we start to realize that the Lord starts to build a cathedral. And the place where there was sort of a lean-to surf shack, where a good wind would blow it down and we were still busy trying to keep things up with tape, the Lord now was going to build the most beautiful building so that when people walk by, they, they would have to say, whoever lives in this building is magnificent. That's the point. But for him to do that, there is a series of tearing down. The Lord can't fill full hands, or won't fill full hands. Israel has now had 40 years in the wilderness And they are facing the shores, if you will, of the Jordan where they are looking at going into a place that God could have given them 38 years ago. But out of lack of trust in God, they didn't go. Their answer was simple. The sons of Anak are there. The Anakim. We meet them, by the way, in Numbers 13, 14, where that time takes place 38 years ago. Sons of Anak. Who in the world are they? We'll see that they are in essence 
the industry standard for giants. They're the most famous, or apparently so, the most famous, well-known, and they're the ones by which all other giants are gauged. Imagine, not a race of people as much as a family. A family where every boy in there makes Jeffrey look like Naomi. Those of you who know both of them. Or a very large, tall person to look like a very small, not large person. And now there is this set of a couple sermons. A generation has died in the wilderness, and now a second generation is going to enter into the promised land because the old man will not take the new land well. And thus God intends to make a new creation out of each of us. The old person will not take God's good things and do well with them. And so Moses is, in essence, teaching a second generation what the first generation should have learned and taught. For us, it's a bit of a reminder because we've walked through now the first four books where we've seen these things happen. But for this generation that he's speaking to, much like anyone roughly that age, I imagine they probably went, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, Uh uh-huh, sure. But they won't listen as closely as they should. And that becomes part of the problem. This particular chapter, and each one of them has sort of a theme, a, a key point. The Lord in this chapter, like every chapter, has told us that following him in obedience is fundamental. In this chapter, he tells us that that is in every way against who we are as people. We're so naturally stubborn, pig-headed, stiff-necked, driven to our own things, that even when the very best is offered us, unless we've already thought it up, We may refuse it simply out of the pride of not thinking we thought it. We'll take this in bite-sized pieces, this chapter. And as we take it in these bite-sized pieces, the first two verses, God's going to basically give us the, the, well, really the carrot that hangs before us from three then to seven. He'll start to walk us through the key point of this and then review for the rest of the chapter 8 to 29. He'll review then at least six key areas. Well, one summing up a handful of uh, events. Just to remind us that this is and will always be about grace. Pray with me, would you? And we'll jump in. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the way, Lord, that you lead us and that you draw us close to you. Thank you for what you're going to do in this time. And Lord, regardless of where we, we entered into this place, regardless, Lord, of regardless of whether we came in as cynics or skeptics or we came in open-hearted like a sponge, You know how to speak to every one of us. On this, our last church meeting of 2014, I just see your brilliance in leading us to this chapter on this day with this precious group of people you bled and died for. So get me out of your way. Take my lips and attach them to your heart and speak so profoundly to each of us. 
that we hear you and we get you and we respond accordingly. So, Lord, have your way. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Verses 1 and 2. Hear, O Israel, you were to cross over the Jordan today and go in to possess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anakim? Verse 3 says, Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. You So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. The term hero Israel is unique, by the way, to Deuteronomy. 5, 1, 6, 3, 6, 4, here, 20, verse 3. The only other time it's mentioned is when Jesus is actually referring back to Deuteronomy 6 with the Shema in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Hero Israel. This is Moses now looking back. We're standing at the shores and there's a necessity of us remembering where we've come from before we even move forward and to not do the mistakes that our parents have. And for some of us, there's a big amen in our hearts to say, hey, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to make those mistakes. And he tells us, you're about to cross over today and to possess a land greater and mightier than yourself. Nations greater and mightier than yourself. Cities fortified even up to heaven. People great and tall. Descendants of the Anakim. I've heard, you've heard it said. Who can stand against them? These Anakim, again, were the people that that the nation Israel in Numbers chapters 13 and 14 uses the excuse to say there's no possible way we're going to go in there. 38 years ago, God said, go into the land. Now, how many of you were even alive 38 years ago? Let me ask you this. By a show of hands, if you're willing to do this, how many of you are younger than 40 years old in this room? Raise your hand. Now, look around. All y'all are the generation that Moses is speaking to. You aware of that? Is that crazy? This message is for you. He's going, your parents made some mistakes. Sorry, Auntie and others. I mean, other people who aren't. Yeah, yeah. In your heart, yes, very much. You've seen the mistakes of your parents. Some of you have had to bear the brunt of that. You've worn around your own neck the collar of its own slavery that has been handed down to you in many cases by those parents. The habits, the way you react to problems, the way that you actually speak and communicate. When the fire alarm gets hit, you know, that place where you're no longer actually trying to solve a problem, but now you're just either panicking or yelling and screaming and emotions are, emotions are running everything. You know those places. Next thing is, don't you want to be different from that? Aren't you tired of that? Your parents said there was no possible way this could happen. And on paper, it, it doesn't look good either. So if you're going to show this to an adult, quote-unquote adult, pardon me for saying, someone that's older and mature, and they look at you and say, that's the craziest thing I ever heard, that sounds so stupid, that's impossible. Well, welcome to the family. And the Lord is now speaking to them. He's telling them, listen, listen, we are about to pull off the impossible. 
in regards to man. I mean, we look at you guys and we look at them and we look at you guys and we look at them and we look at you guys and you go, there's no way this is going to happen except me. So the Lord lays this on and goes, look it, I want you to recognize I'm just as aware as you are of how impossible this is humanly. I'm not lying to you. I'm not deceived. I'm not trying to pull something over on you. It is clearly impossible in and of yourself. That's the cool part about it. Which means then, I am inviting you to take a walk with me on a life and a journey through the miraculous. Isn't that anything that's impossible that's done? Isn't that a miracle? As I'm inviting you now, from this point on, to follow me into the world of the miraculous, where every step you take is a miracle. Every breath you breathe is a miracle. Every ground I give you will be a miracle. Every person that you influence will be a miracle. Your entire life will be a miracle. Or... You can suck down to the rest of the world and live the mundane and monotonous with everybody else and just sort of put on your institutional this and walk your institutional walk and go to your institutional institution and in the end of it all, die the institutional death and be buried in institutional burial and in the end of it all, have nothing for it. But it's a less demanding route because everybody takes it so it's well trod. That means it's wide and easy versus the narrow and rough road that Jesus promised. And God looks and he goes, would you like to go and walk with me in the impossible? Aren't you tired of the monotonous? Aren't you tired of the ordinary? Aren't you, isn't there something inside of you that says, yeah, the culture might say don't stand out, but there's something inside of you that says, no, I'm going to. Isn't there a part of you inside that says, you know, I, I'm, I'm not content with status quo. I'm not content even with what the, the church in mass calls okay. Because if that's really all it is, it's just a counterculture that's just as full of avarice and just as full of greed and just as self-consumed and just as everything else that I hate in the world. Why in the world would I want that? Because I'm inviting you as we stand at the brook of the Jordan to live the life of the miraculous. And unless you are going to walk with me by faith, you are going to die of an ulcer before you actually cross the Jordan. And I know those people are tall. And I know there's a reputation for them. That people say there's no possible way anyone could go against that. And you could fill in that slot yourself. What industry? What culture? What mindset? What sin? What vice? Would you say, well, that's a son of Anak. Now, the term Anak, by the way, from which this comes, is a term, Anak, it actually means a collar. But it's not a collar like it. Now, we might say, oh, like a necklace. Oh, that's so lovely. It's so decorative. But that's not the idea. If you've ever been to a museum that actually foretell, or tells the history of slavery, and you see in that history those horrible manacles that they would put around the necks of slaves, it was called a collar. That is the term that is used for an anarch. It's the thing that wraps around your neck. Now, here's the thing. You can break out of those manacles in your hands and possibly your feet, but the one around your neck just doesn't come off. And the moment they pull you, you go. There's a little give and take in your own strength to fight with your feet or with your arms, but that neck doesn't have a lot of resistance. And that's the term for these Anakim. And I don't know what that collar is for you. Is it a sexual sin? Is it a, an emptiness? Is it an insecurity? Is it a fear? But everybody has their Anakim. Whatever it is. And here's the thing. I don't need to know, but I can know this much. My God is the Anakim breaker. 
And regardless of what your Anakim is, he knows how to take it down. And he's inviting you today. He's going, look it. Maybe you've seen enough of the politic and you don't like it. God says, I don't like it either. Read the Gospels. I never, had a, I never enjoyed the politic. Because the politic, again, was built on man. And it wasn't about surrender. And it was no cross in there at all. So maybe that's your problem. Maybe your problem is that there's things that are so fantastical that you feel like they must be fairy tales. Maybe just warn you with this. My God's a God of miracles. Shouldn't his history be filled with them? If you get, I've learned if you get past the first verse of the Bible, the rest should be easy. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If you can recognize that if God created the heaven and the earth, he could do whatever he wants with it. And scientists are still trying to catch up, and they always will be. They'll say, how could God stop the sun in the sky, the valley of Ayilon? It's his sun. It's his sky. It's his earth. They're like, well, don't you realize gravity would stop and everything would fly off? As if that would, uh, that would evade God's mind. He's like, oh, whoops, woman, and try to put everything back. God knows what he's doing. And this God who can speak everything out of nothing, light out of darkness, and create sunsets and rainbows, can create vegetation that can smell great, and, and animals that make crazy noises, and give you ears to hear the sound of a friend or a song, sensors under your skin to feel the touch of a friend, the warmth of a hug, eyes to see these colors, and a mouth to taste Thai food or whatever it is you would prefer. Barbecue. It's the same God who says, now would you like to come follow me? Because I gave you those things to enjoy. Now would you like to come follow me? We're going to do the impossible. You want to step out of the boat with me? And we think, no possible way. Who's going to applaud you for that? Even well-meaning Christians are going to give you that sort of intervention talk which like, you know I care for you. And you know once they start with that, there's that uh-oh in your spirit, right? I'm concerned because you're becoming fanatic. Why, thank you. I've heard a friend say, as a, a, a person we know fairly well these days, that says, you know what? He comes from Israel and he talks about the fanatics. A fanatic Muslim blows himself up and kills everyone he can with him. A fanatic Jew separates himself from everyone and won't touch anyone. And a fanatic Christian tells everybody about Jesus. Oh, goodness me. But if someone won the lottery and they wanted to share it with all their friends, would that be okay? Sure. Well, this is even better. God says, I'd like you to come and follow me. But if you're going to follow me into the miraculous, you must go exactly where I say and do exactly what I say. Well, that sounds like absolute control. Yes, but if he's the only one who knows how to walk on water, I think you'd be wise to follow. And that becomes the problem. We're like, I don't want to submit my free will to somebody else. Well, then, okay, you can have your own free will and choose to walk back in the monotonous minutia of institutional nothingness. Be my guest. I'm going to go walk on the water with him. And for that to happen, you must follow, and you must follow close, and you must be attentive. Well, in Chicago, where I'm originally from, we had this walk from where I lived to the school that I went to. Most of the houses in our area didn't have fences, and one of the reasons was because all the fences were on the windows, if that makes sense. And there was one guy who really didn't want anyone in his yard. And he got the nastiest, loudest, 
most rabid dog that he possibly could. And I think it was like part dog and part something from I Am Legend or something. It was just like disgusting. It was part demon dog or something. And he kept that thing and he measured that chain and he put that stake in really tight at the corner of his house. And he got that chain so perfect that that dog could get exactly to the edge of our sidewalk, the pavement. And of course... Kids that think guys are trying to show how tough they are. I don't care how tough you are, man. When that dog comes at you, even though you know that chain's supposed to hold it, you squeal like a little girl and cross the street. And no matter how much he barks and no matter how ferocious he looks, I thanked God for that stake and that chain. It did exactly what he wanted. It kept everybody away from his house. He couldn't even get mail. But it was a constant reminder how important it was to stay on the path. Back at a time when I really didn't have a path that I wanted to go on at all, that was good. But I'm reminded of that when I see this. It's like it actually is a very safe route as long as you trust the chain and you trust the stake. It doesn't matter how big the dog is. You're safe as long as you stay on the path. These Anakim, by the way, are going to be used back when God reviews back in Deuteronomy 2.10 and 2.21. When he reviews and walks them through other nations, if you remember, he says it was a group called the Emim, and they were just as big as the Anakim, that God took down for Moab to give Moab their land. And in 2.21, then he says there was another group called the Zanzumim. Boy, that just strikes fear, doesn't you? Zanzumim. And they were just as big and mighty as the Anakim. But God took them down to give Ammon their land. And God says, look at my history. Have I ever had a problem with a giant? Giants don't scare me. And God says, so listen, verse 3, you need to understand this. Don't try to get ahead of me. I'm the one who's going to take these guys down, because you can't. You know, there's actually something peaceful and restful about knowing that you can't do something, but he can. And he calls you to it. And you turn and say, well, then you better lead. Because there's no way I'm leading on this expedition. And you go to those particular places. Have you ever been to one of those countries where somebody from the country must lead you? No, no matter how cool you try to look, you want them in front. Central America is the other breeding ground, other than Australia, for all of the obnoxious and noxious and dangerous spiders and snakes and so forth. And there are spiders as big as your face. Some jump and bite. Some just bite and some just jump. It's kind of important to know which is which. It's like, no, no, you go first. That's cool. I'll follow. And there are times where there's always somebody that says, sir, we'll follow. And when they stop, they keep going. You know those people? The pace is a little too slow for them. And the guide's smart enough to walk them in areas where they know where the jumping, non-biting spiders are to take them there. One of those will get you back in line real quick. God says, I need you to follow me. We are facing 215. None of us have done 215 before. None of us have lived a day in 215 before. Some of us have a rough idea of what we think might happen in 215. Some of us have no clue at all. But as we get near to 215, 
I believe the Lord is giving us this message for this specific reason. I'm taking you to a land you've never been, to a place you've only heard of, a place of overflow and fruitfulness, a place of satisfaction and contentedness, a place where no one can steal your joy, a place where you are amazing and contagious. But I need you to follow me. And I need you to know I need to go before you to do this. You're not helping me out. You're following and you're picking up what I leave behind. You're collecting the spoil. So listen, I'll be a consuming fire. I'm not just going to be a scary monster. I'm not just going to be something that kind of does one of those like sort of WWF kicks and the guy kind of falls down and shudders for a couple moments on the mat. A consuming fire means that there's nothing left of your enemy. You're aware of that, right? He says, he will destroy, as a consuming fire, he will destroy them and bring them down before you. And so you will destroy them quickly, just as I said to you. And since it's such a done deal, God already knows the natural tendency of what happens when the Lord leads us to victory. And that's our second section. Look at it with me. Verse 4. And do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out from before you, you say. And tell me if you can kind of get the hint of this, of what he's trying to make clear in these Verses 4 through 6. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out from before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me to possess this land. It's not because of that, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word in which the Lord swore to his fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you the good land to possess because of your righteousness, because you're stiff-necked people. Did you get the point? Three different times in three verses, he says, you need to know you didn't earn this. You'll never earn this. This isn't about check me out, I'm good or I'm bad or whatever it is. She's like, so when we do, it's still not you. And he knows the natural tendency. You hear it in a person's testimony. Something happened and you are so hopeless. I mean, the first time you tell it, you're such an amazement, you actually tell it more honestly. So in essence, I was the damsel in distress. I was helpless. God stepped into this situation and bam, he just took care of the whole thing. Everything was laid to rest. And I just held on to him and said, my hero. And that was how we tell it the first couple times. And then it was like, well, I kind of knew there was a way out, and I prayed for that way out. And then as I prayed for that way out, God came in. And then by the time we're told it the fifth or tenth time, it's like we were 90% of the way there, and God kind of filled that last little slot, and we got out. I was just reaching the top of the pit, and God grabbed my hand. It's amazing how that changes. And this is what happens. He says, look, I know your natural tendency is how you want to take credit for what I do. That's why I put you in hopeless situations. Because if I put you in the hopeless situation, you really can't get credit for it. And you'll look really stupid for trying to make it up to make it look like you did. But you will. And people are like, uh-huh, uh-huh, And sooner or later, it's like, you know what, there's just no way. There's just no way you could do that. God goes, look, you need to know... This is and will always be about grace. And this is what separates Jesus from every other religion that will ever be. 
Every other religion is. You do it and I'll respond. You do it and I'll respond. You do this and this and this and you pray this many times and you go to this place and you throw rocks at this thing and you go to this and you fast and you give this to this many people and you make sure you've done this and you say this prayer this many times and, and, and by the time you're done and you've chanted and you've said your mantras and you sat in uncomfortable positions and you ate your yogurt and things that should be left on the trail and all this other stuff and by the time you're done and your head is shaved and you've danced around with mustard on your head. You've beat your drum. And you hope that whatever your performance is, is good enough. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be honest. You hope that your performance is good enough. So that the person on the other side will go, acceptable. And you get in. And God says, can I just say, you were never acceptable by what you did. You were never acceptable by who you were. I love you because I'm love. That's why. And the good news is, and look at the other side of that for a moment. The beauty in that is, if you didn't have to earn to get it, you don't have to fight to keep it. If there was something, and if you're like, I just want to see what God saw in me, you really don't. Because if you actually saw what God saw in you, you probably wouldn't go, wow, that's beautiful. You'd start barfing. If you saw what was inside of me, you'd start running. And here's the thing. Imagine if it was. Imagine if it was a runner goes, Oh, Lord, I just want to see what you... What was it that drew you to me? And the Lord says, Yes, the Lord says, That beautiful way you speak. And then one day she wakes up with laryngitis. The Lord doesn't love her that day because she can't speak. The Lord says, praise me. And she's like, ah, and he's like, deal's off. We are done. Hasta la vista. That would be really bad. It's your brains. It's your talent. It's your kindness. It's your goodness. It's the way you engage people. It's the what. If whatever it is, is there anything that can't be taken away? But how about when you say, what did you see in me that drew you to me? And if, what if God said nothing? And you're like, oh, cool. Now, that doesn't mean I should go out and be a horrible person. What that means is, well, you love me anyways, and you knew it all. He said in the last chapter, hey, don't think for a moment that I chose you as a nation even for the mission I called you to because you were even bigger, mighty, because you were in any way anything but the underdog. You were the least likely. And I have a soft spot for underdogs. He goes, you know why I love you? Because I love you. I actually love that. When you can love someone because the Lord just put love in your heart for them, and you don't have to perform to keep it because you didn't have to perform to get it. And he goes, so you need to know this. Stop thinking for a moment. Somehow in your amazing personality or your amazing performance, I responded to that. And you're like, well, isn't faith, though? Don't we pray and can we move the hand of God? Actually, might I suggest this? When we pray in faith, we're not moving the hand of God. God's sort of standing there like this going, I want to give this to you, Nathan. I want to give this to you. And you're like, whatever it is, right? And we could tell God, this is what I want. And God's like, but this is better. And you're like, oh, but I really need this. And God's like, no, you don't. Faith says, I trust you enough. And we put our hands underneath and say, all right, Lord, go ahead. It didn't move his hands. 
It just allowed us to take what he was offering us. There's the difference. He says, stop thinking for a moment. When we get there, when I take you into this world of the miraculous, people are going to look, because it's such a strange thing, people are going to go, whoa, what happened to you? You were a nut. You were a crazy person. You were a nutter. You were a whatever. You were an addict. You were insane. And now look at you. What happened? And you might go, well, it's the 12, 15, 18 step program. And it's the, no, 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 no. It was one step I cried out to the Lord and he took the step. And then he started changing me from that point on. It's never going to be about me being right with God because of anything I did. The reason I got right with God is because he did. That's why Jesus died on the cross is because we couldn't get up to God. So he came down to us. And he goes, you know, I know what's going to happen. The moment I say, all right, you guys are stubborn. You are stiff-necked people. The natural reaction to that is, who do you think you are? I'm not stiff-necked. God knows how we're naturally defensive. Even when this is God who knows everything about us is approaching us and going, I just want you to be, be honest, although it isn't even God, it's Moses who's speaking this. It's like Moses as our big brother who isn't even going to be able to go into the land. Moses himself has made his mistakes. And he's looking, he's looking I can't even go in it. And I really want to go in and I can't. You can You don't even realize the gift you have that I can't. Please, go in for me at least and learn from the mistakes I've made. Don't do them yourself. I'm going to have to sit on this side and die so you guys can get over there. Hmm. So learn from this. Stiff-necked? How am I stiff-necked? How am I stubborn? I mean, I know 1 Samuel says that stubbornness is like idolatry. That's not a pleasant thought. He goes, well, then let's just kind of review a little bit of film here. Make yourself comfortable, get yourself some popcorn. This is going to be the tragedy of your life prior. Verse 7, which takes us to the rest of the chapter. Remember, don't forget how you're provoked. That will be our key word, by the way. It'll be used here, 7, 8, and 22, where he'll actually go through all of the other places, and then he'll say, likewise, in verse 23, every place that he lists in one way or another will revolve around the fact that your stubbornness is, you are actually stubborn to be the irritator, to, to challenge God, to challenge him. Remember, don't forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you departed the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How? Well, let's start with this. Chapter 12, you got out of Egypt. Chapter 12 and 13, 13, you dedicated the firstborn. By chapter 14, you already started challenging God. Chapter 14, verse 12, the people say, Didn't we tell you, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Boy, that's a great group of people to take out. That's our first chapter outside. Chapter 15, in essence, our first chapter where we finally start moving. Exodus 15, verse 24, then the people complain against Moses. What are we going to drink? In a place called Mara. In Exodus 16 now, the next chapter, we're in the wilderness of sin. And by verse 3, they say, Oh, that we had died at the hand of the Lord, at the land of Egypt, where we had pots of meat, where we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. The next chapter, chapter 17, they're in Rephidim. 
by verse 3. Why is it you've brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And all of this is in the first three months. Have a nice 40 years. God's like, I, I, I know all this stuff. I know every time when you didn't even say it out loud, but inside you're like, you know what? I, you've abandoned me. Where are you now? What have you done? Why? I don't get it. This is rough. Might I say, here's just some elements of what it looks like to live an unrighteous, stiff-necked life. The first, by the way, is a complaining, accusing mouth. That, by the way, sounds an awful lot like what Revelation calls the accuser of the brethren. James 3 tells us, by the way, out of our same mouth comes blessings and cursings. He goes, how did, can a stream produce fresh water and salt water at the same time? Can a plant produce good fruit and bad fruit? What are you thinking? Verse 8 tells us our second stop, our first actually major stop, and that's Horeb. That's, by the way, the Mount Sinai. And from this point on, he makes really clear, as he gets to these specific spots, that as we challenge God and we're given to deviate, it is, necess- it is necessary to mediate. There's the problem. So the history here will be about how the people are given to wander. And now Moses is given to intercession. Verse 8 says, Also in Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, so that the Lord was angry enough to have destroyed you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate neither bread nor drank water. Let me ask you, how long was he up there this time? 40 days and... 40 nights. Okay, now, that's a simple question. I bet you all can answer it. How long were they up there? Bingo. Nice. Verse 10. Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written by the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mount in the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord said, take two tablets and call me in the morning. No. Uh, and it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the, the tablets of the covenant. Verse 12. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from there, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way in which I've commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me, saying, Ah, I've seen these people. They're a stiff-necked people. You know why Moses could call them that? Because God called them that. He says, And God doesn't lie. God says, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. Moses, by the way, at this point you need to recognize, was 80 years old. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God, and made for yourselves a molded calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way in which the Lord had commanded you, and I took the two tablets, threw them out of my hands, and broke them before your eyes. And then I fell down before the Lord, as of the first, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of your sin. So the second time Moses falls down, how long does he fall down for? This would be simple questions. Look at you guys, you could be brand new to Scripture and you're nailing it. Yeah. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of your sin which the Lord committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure in which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron. 
and he would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron at the same time, and I love this. Listen to this. Then I took your sin, the calf in which you had made, and burned it with fire, which is a very good way to burn something, fire, and crushed it and ground it very small. And actually, in the text, it'll tell us he made them drink it too. And until it was fine as dust, I threw it into the brook that descended from the mountain. Second way that I'm very clear on knowing how unrighteous and stubborn I am is by my faithless heart. See, back in this text, we're in Exodus 19.20 when this actually takes place. In Exodus 20, verse 22, when God reiterates, that's not supposed to be a difficult word, reiterates those Ten Commandments, he tells them this, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. The one thing you may not get from the Charlton Heston or a lot of the Hollywood stories is that when God gives the Ten Commandments, the entire nation hears it. So they are hearing God speak these Ten Commandments, of which the first is, you're my only one, I want to be yours. I want this to be a love. Then Moses goes up to get them written. And as he goes up, the people are already breaking the first commandment. So Moses comes down and God says, it's, you need to get down there. The people have polluted themselves to ruin. That's what the word means. Have you ever seen anyone do that? Where they were getting healthy, getting clean. I mean, they were starting to look like they were getting their soul back, so to speak. And then to watch them fall away again. They can't think clearly. They get violent and crazy again. And their whole life falls apart right in front of them. And they're so busy feeding their own destruction, they can't even see it. That's what God's saying here. You need to get down there. These people will kill themselves if they don't. He's with Joshua, and Joshua actually says, it sounds like the sound of war, and Moses says, no, that's just the choir. He says, it sounds like people are dying, and he says, well, kind of. And God says, you know, Moses, I could wipe all of them out and start all over again. But um, he knew Moses who he would say is the meekest man that ever lived. How would you like to have to write that down? God's like, hey, look, we're going to write the Bible. And as we're going to write the Bible, Melissa, I want you to write down, Melissa's awesome. She's so humble. Wouldn't there be a weird part of you that thinks, but if I write this down, can I still say this? Have you heard about the pastor they said was the meekest pastor and they gave him the badge and then they took it away because he wore it? Anyways, you get the idea. I'll let that sink in. To have to write down, he was the meekest man. God knew who to say this to. Moses is like, this isn't about me, God. This is about you. And I know what happens if you, if this, if you kill them all here. I'm concerned for your rep. The world around is going to look and say he could get them out, but he couldn't get them in. Do you even get an in, Christians? We get so wrapped up in the getting out that we don't even realize what the getting in is. Does that make any sense? Getting out. I shouldn't be an addict anymore. I shouldn't be a crazy person anymore. I shouldn't be drunk and addicted to pornography or whatever it is anymore. I shouldn't be beating people up or running around sleeping with everyone. I shouldn't be doing any of that anymore. I get the get out part. 
But do you realize he's got to get into a place where we really are content and he's all we need? A place where we're overflowing and serving people, where we're actually not making the world about us anymore, but actually picking up our own cross, denying ourselves daily and following him? I mean, a place where we're actually quick to serve and a needy person is actually an enticing person because it gives us an opportunity to exercise kindness upon someone? Could you imagine? Could you imagine any church, this church that way? Just this group right here. Could you imagine? Because it's what God wants. There is a place of fruitfulness. A place, a place of overflow. And you could be in a place where you could kind of deny that from your friends or kind of try to be cool, but in the end of it all, this is what you're robbing yourself of. So Moses threw himself down and said, please don't do this. God says they're stiff-necked and he goes, please don't do this. So what happened? I threw down those stones and you, you could see you broke the law, right? And then I threw myself down and again for another 40 days and 40 nights and I, I was so torn up. All I really wanted was for you not to die. All I wanted was for you not to live the rest of your life like that. I'm like, God, please don't do that. And God knew it. It's a deal. We'll pick this up as we bring this around. Verse 22 tells us, he says, also at Tibera. Tibera, by the way, is in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, where it tells us that these people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the fire of his anger went out and burned the outskirts of the camp. Some of you are familiar with that because the outskirts is that place that's farthest from where he is. And I realized that one of the things that displays my own unrighteousness is my wandering eye. At the center of the camp was God's presence. And at the center of God's camp was that place where we could just enjoy him. But there's a part of my eye that looks and says, what's on the other side at the end of the camp, on the other side of the camp? What does the world really still have to offer? Instead of influencing it, then I come as a consumer. Verse 22 says, and at Masa, Masa was the place where Moses had to uh, strike the rock and bring water. And then a second time speak to it, but struck it instead. And I realize it's the unrighteousness of a loose temper. And boy, I praise God. This was the first thing I asked God to slay in me because I knew how dangerous that was. I realized today I'm not running around fighting anyone. I'm not beating anyone. I'm not, I used to go out looking for fights. My whole early childhood was about learning martial arts. So I kind of came in just expecting I don't do that anymore. When I was young in Christ, I knew I wasn't right to beat anybody up or get in such a fight. So I just argued. It's like verbally sparring. And I realized how stupid that was after a while. But all that starts with a bitterness and an anger and a looking at people with contention. And God's like, that, does not, that doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. He also says at the end of verse 22, Kibrot Hata'ava. Try that. Kibrot Hata'ava. It means graves of craving. Remember, that's the place where everybody complained and said, Oh, we miss food. We miss meat. We're so tired of this worthless manna. That's in Numbers 11. And I realized one of the things that shows my unrighteousness is the unrighteousness of a craving mind that is so busy. God says, here's the menu. It will satisfy you completely. And I'm busy to say, well, let me talk to the cook and see what else I can get. That's, by the way, all a lust is, is something where you try to meet an, an, you try to meet an appetite outside of the way that God has prescribed in his menu. 
Verse 23 says, And likewise, the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea. Now he reviews where they're at right now, the last time when they would not step in. God said, go and possess the land I've given you. But you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you did not believe him, nor obey his voice. You've been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you, and thus I prostrated myself before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights and kept prostrating myself because the Lord said that he would destroy you. How how long was Moses prostrating himself here? You kind of get the idea that that's sort of a thing for him, isn't it? And I prayed to the Lord, and I said, Oh, Lord God, do not destroy your people and your inheritance whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out with Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and don't look on the stubbornness of this people or on the wickedness or their sin, lest the hand, I'm sorry, the land from which you brought us should say, because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land in which he promised them, because he hated them. He has brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. Yet they're your people and your inheritance whom you brought out by your mighty power and by your outstretched arm. And the end of it, I realize that one of the things that proves it is just my disobedient life, which, by the way, tends to come from a craving mind and a loose temper and a wandering eye and a faithless heart. And here's the thing as I wrap this, and I, and I realize, I'm like, Lord, I know you want me to do something with this. More than just, okay, I can agree idealistically, ideologically, this is the, the problem. We're dealing with stubborn people. Stubborn people mean that we have to outstubborn them, right? Parents, you know that. When those kids need to take their medicine and they want to stubbornly not, not take it, you've got to be more stubborn for their benefit. Is that pleasant? Of course it's not pleasant. Ironically, it's more unpleasant for you, I'm convinced, than it is for the children. They're like, no, why are you putting up such a fight? I don't like the taste of the medicine. Are you serious? I don't like the taste of this conversation. Some of you are amending that in your heart really loud. But this is what the Lord has shown. The Moses reviewed two things. He reviewed how close to annihilation people were. And how the one thing that made the difference was one person who stood in the gap. Just one. It was Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham stood up to God, not in drawing lines against him, but tapping into his heart and said, would you actually destroy the righteous with the wicked? Remember when he sort of tried to chisel God down? If there were 50 righteous in that city, would you destroy it? No. Okay, um... Well, please don't be angry, but what about 40? Uh, what about 30? And he gets them down to 10. But there weren't even 10 righteous in that city. By the way, to this day, that's why the Jews call that a minion. Not like those little yellow guys that go, but if you have 10 Jewish men, they would call them 10 righteous men. You can have a synagogue. That's where that comes from, is that debate. And I get that. I have an 11-year-old that thinks like this. At 10, she says, Dad, I need an iPhone. Of course. Not want, but need, of course. Well, I'll tell you what. You raise $100, 100 pounds, and I'll pay the rest. So, Dad, immediately, without even blinking, if I, by chance, had 99 pounds, would you pay the extra pound? I'm like, yes, but not a pound more. She's like, she was already going to 98. 
The question is, did the Lord, was he upset about that? I don't think so. I think the Lord was blessed that someone would be so torn up over people. Because you know who that reminds him of? Himself. It's Moses in Exodus 32. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from the harm that you would do to your people. It was Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1.6, and I love it. He says, we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Would you please forgive us? It was Daniel in chapter 9, verse 5. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Even by departing from your precepts and your judgments, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, your name to our kings and our princes, our fathers and our people in the land. Verse 8 says, because we have sinned against you. Verse 9 says, because we've rebelled against you. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord to walk in his laws in which we've set before, you've set before us by your servants, the prophets. So would you please forgive us? Verse 15, we've sinned. We've done wickedly. Verse 16 says, O Lord, then according to your, all your righteousness, I pray, then let your anger and your fury be turned away. Verse 17, and for your, the Lord's sake, would you cause your face then to shine on your sanctuary? Verse 18, for we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. And I ask, where are the Nehemiahs today? As God says in Isaiah 59, truth falls, people depart for evil and make themselves pray. The Lord saw it, it displeased him, and he saw that there was no justice, and he saw that there was not even one man, and he wondered that there was no intercessor at all. In Jeremiah 5, 1, it tells us, Run to and fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places if you can find a man, if there is even anyone who executes judgment, who seeks truth, and I will pardon her. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, I sought for a man who would make a wall, who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. And I found no one. What's very clear is God's looking. The question is, is God going to find anyone? Anyone that is so not so into themselves, but so into other people that they would be willing to be torn up for this city. The city that is our city. And it's not just a place where some people come and go, and let's face it, a lot of people do. For some of us, this is as much home as home's going to be until we get to heaven. For me, that's included. And my family, this is our home. As much as home on earth is going to be, this is our home. California's not our home. America's not our home. This is our home. This is where he's called us. This is our home. And I don't want my home going to hell. How about yours? And he's looking. Now, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ here today, and let me make clear what that is as we wrap this up now and bring this to close. The wandering heart needs a mediator, and God knew it. And the only right mediator, the truest mediator, like Moses, who stood in the gap for God, for the people. And then says in Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be one that will rise up like you from among your brethren. Him you must hear. A prophet just like you. Someone who's going to speak God's words. And we know that to be Jesus. He's going to do what Moses did. Only on a greater degree. 
We read in the Timothy letters, there's only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Why does, why does Jesus qualify and nobody else does? First of all, because he's God in the flesh. None of these other guys were. Second of all, because he actually paid for our sins. None of the other guys did. None of the other guys even volunteered for that role, by the way. I'd like you to consider that. None of the other guys rose from the dead. I think those are three pretty good qualities. Things that make him unique. And I want you to know the Lord has gone before you to pay for all your sins. Remember how Moses said, I took your sin. I grounded his powder and threw it in the water. It was gone and unretrievable. Well, Jesus took your sin and he nailed it to a cross. He buried it and he left it there. And he offers you a brand new life. If you haven't accepted that, I want to give you the opportunity to today. And you can fight that all you want. But what you're fighting is the love of God who wants you no matter how nasty and gross or filthy or whatever you may be. He still wants you. But Christians, I want to put this call out and then I'll go back to all of us and invite us to pray that prayer to receive that gift. I'd like to invite you to something on a journey with me. I've never done this either, so this is a new thing for me. But I can't just read this text and go, yeah, yeah, cool, all right. So would you flash that email address, please? 40 days starting tomorrow takes us to the first Saturday in February. Moses took 40 days and 40 nights. I'm not telling you that's a magical formula. But this is what I'd like you to, to invite you to do with me. I'd like to invite you to pray with me for 40 days for our city. Each day, a specific point that anybody who wants to join with me, and if no one else does, I'm still going to do it. And so I'm giving you my email address up there. And I'm, if you want to join me, email me tonight or today sometime or whatever. You can do it on your phone right now if you need to and just say, I'm in. And each day or each evening, starting tonight, since the first one will be tomorrow, I'll just toss out a key point. Let's pray for this city to be overtly aware of their need. For forgiveness. That kind of thing. And each day there'll be just a key point. No, you don't have to do it that way if you don't want to. But that's how I am so moved. And as pastor, I just would want to invite anyone else to join me. Does that make sense? So Christians, that will include every person God's given you the privilege of being company to. Who knows what the Lord's going to do in these 40 days? But I want to stand in the gap for our city. And if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I want to stand in the gap for you, but I don't need to. Jesus already has. I'm here as his messenger to say, hey, listen, today you could be brand new. All of that filth and the weight that's on your shoulders, the roughness of this world around you that you've just been trying to carry yourself, man, you could just let it go and let someone love you that knows everything about you even more than you do. And isn't, isn't scared at all. But just like any love, love is a choice. He's proven it by dying on the cross and raising again. That's his proof. And he did it when you weren't his. The Bible tells us if we're willing to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Right now, this very moment. Not later, he'll take a vote. But this very moment, he is willing to transform you. And on this last Sunday in 2014, wouldn't this be a great time to say yes to Jesus? 
You say, well, man, what's he, what's he going to make me do? Take his love. Clean you out. Reinvent you in such a beautiful way. You won't even recognize you. And believe me, you'll be thankful. We become construction projects the moment we say yes. And every day I'm more thankful. But that's your choice. And as we pray, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen so you don't feel like you're blindly doing anything. And at the end, if you agree with that prayer, so that's why I ask you to listen, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying by that is, I agree. Let those words be mine. Let that prayer be mine now, so be it in my life. That's what you're saying. And maybe you just want to renew your vows today and you want to say, yes, Lord. Today I want to say yes to you all over again. Well, you're welcome to do that as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for your people. Lord, you've told us that the condition of a city or a country will never be gauged by its unbelievers, but by your people. The safety and security of anything will be gauged and hinged upon the integrity of your saints. And I first, Lord, want to stand in the gap for the saints in this country and in the Western world, that includes America, we have walked away from your word and we've invented you to be somebody infinitely stupider and weaker and uncaring than you are. You're perfect. How can we change that and make it better? We have walked away from marriage. We have walked away from caring. We've walked away from selflessness and what true love really looks like. And we've made it about us. We've turned church into a show, into a saloon, into a place where people can just sleep, where they don't expect to gauge you, where they don't expect to pray, where they feel like there's a box to tick at best and they do it and leave as if completely unchanged. And I pray that you change that. The church has become apathetic, God. We've become apathetic. We've become less caring of people and more about ourselves. We've become indifferent to our sin. We've become numb to a world that's going to hell around us. And we're too concerned about what other people would think of us than concerned about what they would think of your gospel. And we're too busy saving our own rep than we are making you known. And God, I pray for your forgiveness And I pray for your transformation. That you would, Lord, fill us with the selflessness that you have. And with the love and the hunger that you have to see people know you. And today, God, that you would transform us again and teach us how to love. And teach us how to to lay ourselves down and deny ourselves and follow you as we should. That when the world looks, they can't deny that your church is a different people. The most foreign and strange and unique thing. And we're so busy trying to blend in where you've called us to be different. We're busy trying to make friends where we're supposed to be holy. You've told us friendship with the world is enmity against you. Let us rather be your friend and engage the world for their salvation. So Lord, give us a greater love for you. 
and a greater selflessness that comes by the power of your Holy Spirit. We recognize this is the world of the miraculous you're calling us on. And we recognize we can't do that in disobedience. We can't do that in stubbornness unless what we're doing is stubbornly following you. So I pray for that now. Give us a distaste for sin. And give us a hunger to love people the way we're supposed to. And that everything be done in your name. Not to put that light under a bushel, but to proclaim you unapologetically. Unapologetically. As you deal with that in our hearts. I pray for anyone in this room now who is debating on this choice to make. But the power of your Holy Spirit convince them of the beauty of this choice and the magnificence of saying yes. And if that's your debate right now and your heart is racing and you're trying to be cool, but God's got you nailed, listen to this prayer and then jump with me. Here's the prayer. God, I'm a sinner. That's no news for anyone, me included. But you love me anyways. I've sought to live life without you, but you want me anyways. I've sought the things of you in other places, but you want me anyways. You want me so much that you'd rather die than live without me. And on that cross, my sins were paid for. Father, you sent your son to pay my price. And all of my crimes, my heart were punished on that cross. Jesus, with me on your mind, you died there. Just like scripture promised. And after being buried, just like scripture promised, you rose again on the third day to show me that the life that could die only brought about a brand new life. Much more glorious, infinitely more glorious. And you offer me that, recognizing that who I am right now, the beleaguered, confused, angry, bitter, lonely, frightened, insecure person will die. That on the other side, an infinitely more glorious person at your creation, at your hand, will arise. And if that really is your offer, then I say yes. I may not understand everything, but I know this much. If that's really what you want to do, I'm saying yes. So come what may, I choose to accept your gift, your price you paid on the cross, and therefore your lordship as you reinvent me to make me that that is infinitely good. So much so that the world will be changed by what you do through me. So, here I am, I'm yours. If you want me, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer now, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, thank you for those who have said yes to you today. Thank you, Lord, that this is because of love. 
And I pray you lead us now on our knees with great hope to the greatest year we've ever lived thus far. Thank you for calling us into the world of the miraculous. May we always make it about you and live in constant wonder. Jesus, in your name. Amen.